I am delighted to be joined here by Ed Lanfear in beautiful Northern California. Ed, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. It's a pleasure, Ken. You are the, uh, the founding CEO, uh, recently retired, but the founding CEO of Sangamo uh, Bioscience, really one of the pioneers of the whole gene editing field. And we thought it was a great opportunity to really get some of your reflections and perspective on some of the recent history of gene editing, the birth of gene editing, you might say, uh, and perhaps some reflections on where the field is going is now that you can uh, uh, sit back a little bit and uh, uh, enjoy some of the fruits of the amazing work that you and your colleagues put in over the last, I guess, couple of decades. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your background uh, and what led up to the founding of Sangamo. Sure. Well, first, thanks for doing this. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Um, I started in the pharmaceutical industry in, in the early 1980s, uh, Eli Lilly, in what position they called strategic business planning. And I dwell on it just because the principal um, time there, the, the principal role I had, was Lilly had just in-licensed recombinant human insulin from Genentech. And you know, going through all of the history of it, Lilly's efforts or Lilly's goal in, in my job was to figure out how to leverage what they thought were real barriers to entry, a P3 manufacturing facility with a recombinant protein, and capital, and uh, you, know, you can look over there at that headline there. You know, I was, um, these were early, early days of recombinant proteins. And so I had the opportunity to take an Eli Lilly business card and, and meet all of these emerging biotech companies or uh, genetic engineering companies, as we called them back then. You got a framed uh, newspaper front page from the San Francisco Examiner. Right. Genentech jolts Wall Street. Right. Yeah. And 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 just the great serendipity. There's uh, <laughs> Paul Berg yeah. uh, accepting the phone call for the Nobel Prize. Completely Fantastic. serendipitous, right? Yeah. yeah. On the same uh, front page. So I love it. Yeah. So anyway, that was really the, the deep dive into what's going on here. And I was passionate about it. I was able to uh, translate that into a, uh, an opportunity to go to a startup company in Colorado called Synergen, uh -huh. uh, which was very uh, science-driven, Warburg Pincus uh, backup background or capital. Yeah. And then I used that to go into several startup biotech companies where I was able to look at the business, the financial, and the technology, and work on the business development strategy, work on the financing strategy, work on the intellectual property strategy. And in early 1990, uh, I got involved with a company called Somatics, which was a first-generation gene therapy company, mm -hmm. and really some of the fundamental or early folks, Richard Mulligan, Inder Verma, Rusty Gage, Jude Samolsky. Tom Shank. Uh, it was really a great, great group of scientific founders. And uh, I became very interested in gene therapy. But net-net, you know, vectors are very good at getting into cells, and they're pretty agnostic about what you put into them as a transgene. But at those days, you know, there were very few or limited number of therapeutic transgenes, and many of those encoded recombinant proteins, of which there was still intellectual property on the sequence, and so it was difficult to get into it. Fast forward to 1994, 1995, I became aware of work that was being done at Hopkins uh, by Jeremy Berg and Chandra Sagarin on engineering zinc finger proteins. Mm. And again, forward uh, through that, by definition, an engineered protein has a novel DNA sequence. Mm. 
And so while it was certainly unclear what making novel DNA binding proteins might do, that was the other half of this equation. And so I became very interested in that, started Sangamo, and then we ultimately sold somatics to Cellgenesis in 97. I started Sangamo in 95, and then moved full-time into Sangamo in 97. So that's really the, the background that gets us to the beginning of Sangamo. And so Sangamo, where did the name come from? Well, it's an old kind of family name. My great-grandfather in the 1890s, so 100 and... 30 years ago, yeah. some number, founded a company in uh, Sangamon County, Illinois. That's flyover for people who live in yeah. New York and, <laughs> and San Francisco. And he uh, was a Yale electrical engineer, which was as novel as biotech in, yeah. in those days. Yeah. And he designed and patented what's called the watt hour meter. The things that sits on the side of buildings and goes around and around and uh, recorded uh, electricity. And Sangamo Electric, without going through all of the details, became a New York Stock Exchange company and, and lots of different things. Yeah. So it's a, a name uh, left over or, or used yeah. from an old uh, family. Now, when you started the company in 95 or thereabouts, uh, had you met Alan Wolf at that time? No, or no. So he came in a little bit later. No, I, I started the company and quickly tried to read everything in the space. And there wasn't a lot there. But the real epicenter uh, in terms of the work uh, was being done in four labs. So... Um, Jeremy Berg and yep. Chandra Sagarin at, at Hopkins, yep. Aaron and Yen at, at the MRC, uh, Carlos Barbas at Scripps, and of course, Carl Pabo yeah, at, at MIT, uh, MIT and uh, Howard Hughes. So those were really the four labs. And so in 95, 96, I went around and in-licensed uh, the intellectual property from all of those groups. And to your point about Gendak, I got exclusive licenses to all of those, except for the MRC, because it's a U.S. company. Yeah. We'll give you a non-exclusive. And then they started Gendak and did a lot of great work. So we uh, did an early friends and family round. And then in 97, I came in. We did a, a little bit larger, a couple million dollar round. Mm -hmm. That's when it was really fantastic. Brought uh, Expanded the board to include Bill Rudder the co-founder of Chiron and, right. and the Lasker Prize, and Herb Boyer, uh, the co-founder of Genentech, right. and so on. And so my board, you know, with others, uh, included uh, Bill Rudder and, and Herb Boyer, right. which was fantastic. Some of the giants of biotechnology. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you, it just spectacular yeah. uh, guidance and, yeah. and insight into building really a novel technology platform. And you were a, you were a zinc finger company yes, at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, I think we really remained that and, and in many ways. I mean, there are other things that we did in terms of, of gene therapy, but leveraging and employing and developing and really optimizing the zinc finger platform mm. was always core to what we did. Mm. So there's, there was... Gene therapy, as in gene replacement therapy, right. which by the late 90s was starting to show promise. And then we know what happened in 1999 and right. things took a bad turn. But then there was also the notion of using zinc fingers to modulate Right, expression. that was really the first thing we looked at. Yeah. And so targeting endogenous sequence and using a naturally occurring transcriptional activator or transcriptional mm. compressor allowed us to upregulate or downregulate mm 
endogenous genes. Mm. And that was really critical in the early, early days, pre-public, so 98, 99, in, you know, at that time, what was referred to as functional genomics, trying to really look at and sort through mm. Uh, not just sequences, but actually the role of genes. Mm -hmm. And the differentiation there was we could look at endogenous gene activation and endogenous gene repression. It was useful in terms of getting some early partnerships, not large partnerships, but numerous partnerships. Um, we were still quite limited in terms of the scale that we could actually develop novel sequences to novel targets. It was very much, you know, building one cabinet at a time versus the kind of scale we can now do it. But it was very, very useful, not only to us in terms of, of having a need to look at multiple sequences and the challenges of looking at targeting sites and mm -hmm. so on and optimization, mm -hmm. but also got our technology out and, and got us into enough relationships that we could then, when 2000 came around and the kind of irrational exuberance uh, of the time, <laughs> yeah. to go public. We and, and Tularic uh, oh, went yeah. out at the exact same time. Okay. We were out on the road. And Exelixis, uh, George Skagos yeah. and so on, yeah. um, and went public in 2000. Exactly in that same time frame of 2000, end of 99, 2000, was the time that we recruited Alan Wolf. I see. And um, it was, by my sense of things, an enormous coup. By the world who knew Alan, an unimaginable coup. And for folks who don't uh, recall, Alan was a... Alan was a... Somebody will have to give you the exact title of this, but he was, at some ridiculously young age, uh, the youngest director ever at the NIH. Mm. And, you know, had this whole division and, mm. and so on. And, and this group of people, including uh, Theodore and Dimitri and several other people. He was one of the most brilliant men I've ever known. He was also one of the most dynamic and personable and charismatic. And he was a natural leader. So Alan built uh, a nucleus of uh, researchers and investigators who That's are exactly still right. driving Absolutely right. This Alan field. came in and, you know, every single brilliant 20-something alpha male postdoc <laughs> wanted to work for Alan. And he recruited, you know, pick a number, but 10 to 12. Yeah. At the time, I think they were all guys. And do you want to Good just to reflect on, on a few of the key, the big names? You mentioned a few by first name, but yeah. I think for the table, well, we should... Well, I mean, uh... you know, in, in no particular order. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, coming from his lab, yeah. uh, Fyodor Ernoff. Yeah. And Fyodor is one of the most remarkable people you'll ever want to meet. Yeah. He's, he's uh, brilliant. He's charismatic. He's articulate. He's imaginative. And he's just so creative uh, when it comes to... Uh, problem solving and thinking about things in his curiosity is just amazing. Dimitri Richard came also from his lab, and Dimitri was one of these incredible bench scientists. Probably the most critical hire that Alan made was an Englishman who was doing a postdoc in Germany at the time named Philip Gregory. And Philip came in, and again, there's not enough time here to really go through the whole thing, but Amongst a group of unbelievably talented people, Philip uh, organically rose to be sort of the first amongst equals. 
in both his style and substance and leadership and became ultimately our chief scientific officer and and really the core core of our of our science the rigor of our science mm. the strategy of our science and um you know remains i think one of the true true pioneers and to me you know first chair in the um in the whole genome editing field now at bluebird now at bluebird yeah and the other person that just has to be, you know, right there is Ed Rebar. Yeah. Ed was there before Alan, actually. Ed came out of Carl Pavo's lab. Mm. Ed was doing a postdoc at Berkeley mm. in 90, heesh, 97. Mm-hmm. And um, I had met Ed when he was doing his graduate work, his PhD work at, at in Carl's lab back in 95. And... I recruited Ed out of his, uh, he never finished his postdoc. Uh, he, he came and worked for Sangamo. And Ed is the, um, you know, he's the brains yeah. behind the Zinc Finger platform. He, right. Jeff Miller, um, Dave Pashon, uh, you know, the group in, you know, the boiler room. Right. The group that really drove and created from the concept yeah. of, you know, a steam engine to an internal combustion engine to just an expletive deleted, you know, Ferrari. Yeah. Uh, those are the guys who drove that platform. And so at around this time, 01, 02, uh, Dana Carroll, who we've also yes. interviewed for this Good. series, yeah. has uh, started to publish important papers right. Uh, right. on the zinc finger nuclease. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, 01, 02. Was, that, was it Dana's work that early? Yeah. Okay. Because then uh, Baltimore and Porteous right. uh, did some work in, I thought it was more like 04. Four oh five. Okay. Is that right? It's around that. Yeah. yeah. And so we had done, I mean, if you go way back, and this is uh, Chandra Sagarin and Jeremy Berg's work, because Chandra worked with Ham Smith, who obviously yeah. did restriction enzymes. Yeah. And some of the very, very, very early work that we had done was with uh, type 2S restriction nucleases mm. and, and pairing those. And, you know, early days, we were talking about, you know, a designer restriction enzymes mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And so that was the sort of basis of it. The gene regulation work was to try and take advantage of the functional genomics piece of things. And quite frankly, the evolving specificity relative to nucleases. Mm. And so it wasn't really our focus until 0304 with the nucleases because we really didn't have the kind of, of capabilities to create singularly specific, mm-hmm. I mean, singularly specific yeah. nucleases. Yeah. And that's what started to evolve, and, and that's what took us to CCR5, right? Uh, which was really the kind of poster child mm. of being able to produce a highly efficient mm. Nuclease. All right. We'll, we'll come back to CCR5 in a minute. It would appear that the loss, the tragic passing of Alan Wolf, must have been a, a blow. You recovered from it eventually, but uh, how did that hit the company when he died? He died in a car accident, right? He in, died uh, in, Brazil. A, in Brazil. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was out running early one morning yeah. and uh, literally uh, got hit by a bus. Yeah. And uh, I, 
it's un, it, to this day it makes my heart heavy, my yeah. stomach hurt. Yeah, and it just beyond imagination. Uh, his children, by the way, if Alan was a rock star, these guys are, you know, Mick Jagger and Bonnie <laughs> Raitt. I mean, they are so great. Oh, that's great. Um, they're so great. But on the Sangamo side of things, here he'd recruited these, you know, this dozen of alpha males who were just incredible. Uh, all of them, you know, knowing that they were excellent. Yeah. But Alan was the hub of the sure. of the spokes, and you know he'd go around and you know do chess games with all of them like this. You know, I mean, he was capable of doing that. And they respected it, mm-hmm. and then he's gone. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then they look at me and they go, you know, you don't know how to spell DNA, uh, you know, <laughs> let alone ZFP, right? So, what are we going to do? And uh, we were very fortunate to be able to bring in, and just the timing worked out relative to his Hughes, who was then chair of our SAB, which was Carl Pabo. And um, Carl came in and, uh, you know, very different management style, very different approach to, uh, uh, you know, organizational things, but brilliant and really kept us going, particularly, quite frankly, on the core science, the core zinc finger design and engineering pieces of things and the rigor of the the science. But uh, it wasn't long before... You know, Carl didn't want to be in industry that long. He did it for this period of time. And really at that time uh, was really when it became very clear that that Philip was um, more than, I mean, beyond more than capable. was really the guy to lead. And it was driven, as I said early on, by this organic sense of respect that everybody in the building had for him. Right. And so this, uh, you recovered from that setback, and this uh, brings us up towards 2005. Right. I suppose what a big milestone, not only in Sangamo's evolution, but really for the the gene editing field. People today, you know, focus on CRISPRs and and the importance of it, and and it is incredibly important relative to its approachability and ease of use and generality and and making the observations and the breadth and potential of genome editing so clear to so many people. But if you go back and read that paper and you and you see what was done, not speculated, not talked about, but done, that is everything that anybody looking at CRISPRs would ever want to do. Mm. And it is seminal mm. and it is um, appreciated by those that know mm-hmm. the field. Mm-hmm. It is uh, underappreciated by those that um, either A, don't know the field or choose to studiously ignore it for reasons of determining a different set of realities for when genome editing and how genome editing was actually done. That gave us the birth of the term genome editing. Well, and and I think if you ask Theodore... I have. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But yeah, you know, and, and I do think when the movie is written and when the thing is done... I know all of the, it's going to focus exclusively on the Broad and on Berkeley and on France, you know, and so Charpentier, yeah. Charpentier yeah. and, and the, they were, but, you know, it's um, completely unfair and not to me yeah, and not to, you know, the, the work, but to Theodore and to Ed and yeah. to Philip and to Mike Holmes and to Jeff yeah. Miller and to, you know, dozens and dozens and yeah. dozens of people yeah. who did Create this field. Yeah. 
who did create yeah. this field. And it's published and published and published. I mean, that's one thing, you know, we go back to, to the thing that, you know, we talked about Aaron and, and his role with, with us. I mean, we, we Philip and, and Theodore and that whole group, we published our work. Mm-hmm. We published it. It is there yeah. for everybody to see. Yeah. And, you know, David Pashon's paper that just came out. I mean, if you look at the power and generality and specificity and the ability to optimize and the ability to be sequence agnostic, this is the most robust, the most proven, the most therapeutically relevant platform in the genome editing space, bar none. Mm-hmm. And I truly challenge anybody in a published way or yeah. even in an, to refute that. Right. So you touched earlier, Ed, on CCR5, and I wonder if you could... <laughs> but I digress. No, no, uh, because that brings us to really the first clinical um, proof of principle of everything you've been talking about. And I wonder if you could say something about Dale Ando. Yes, also thank just, you. Uh, well, I, and I and actually it was in my mind to say that yeah. as we were starting to talk about it. So Dale came in, and, and I'd known Dale since the uh, cell genesis days. And mm. Dale was one of the greatest gene and cell therapy translational clinicians that has existed. He knew, knows the science, not just the molecular biology, but he understood the quality issues. He understood GMP manufacturing. He understood toxicology studies. He understood dose He was He was the guy who really was the perfect marriage for this incredibly science, science, science-driven organization that we were. And he came in and said, great stuff, but, you know, this is the 19 other things you have to think about. He's the guy that came in who had the relationship with Carl June. He's the guy who said, here's how we can modify T-cells in, in this way. Here's what release criteria, here's what specifications look like. I mean, all of this stuff. And, and you know, think of a incredibly talented two-year-old thoroughbred, right? That's yeah. what we were, Yeah. right? And Dale came in and said, Great breeding, great stuff, but if you want to race this horse, here's how you got to, this is the things you got to do. Right. And, you know, putting a bit in that horse's mouth was not an easy thing. But it's fair to say that you, prior to his arrival, HIV uh, was not something that you were particularly focused on or thought was in your no. future until he said, now here's the Yeah, I mean, it, it, that is 99% true, okay. I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were ideas and stuff, but, you know, if they got past a napkin, you know, not really. Now, Dale really came in because of his experience in cell therapy, yeah. because of his experience in, in vectors and, mm. and in regulatory and, and all this, mm. really was able to help us say, you know, where is the fit? Where mm. does, you know, this really combine in a way that marries our ability to target an endogenous gene with a known therapeutically relevant mutation. Because by this time, it was published and well known oh, yeah. that the CCR5 Delta 32, 32 deletion... Right, right. And, and there was the, the Berlin patient, right, Timothy Brown and, right. and all of that. So yes, the Aaron Diamond work on the Delta 32 and then Timothy Brown. So there was a lot of reason right. to target it, and that's exactly what we did. Right. And very fortunately also had... The relationship with Penn, with Carl June and Bruce Levine and, and that group there right. from a translational perspective. Right. 
So all of the groundwork that you had laid, once the decision was made to go after CCR5, you put the bit in the mouth, you kind of, you know, open the, <laughs> yeah. whatever they call those things. And then <laughs> the barn doors? Or, no, the, 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 yeah, the race doors. Yeah, the race doors. And, and you were off. So yeah. what was the progression then like to actually um, getting this into the clinic? Well, it wasn't dramatic in terms of difficulty. Yeah. Um, you know, again, Dale really drove and Shirley Cliff came in uh, on the regulatory side of things. And Shirley was head of regulatory at Sangamo Forever and Ever. Yeah. She was also at Cell Genesis, one of the early best regulatory people in, okay. in gene therapy. And they drove the IND, they drove the clinical trial operations. You know, early on we did adenovirus, later on we did uh, mRNA Mm -hmm. uh, work. But, you know, the clinical, I don't recall it as being just a massively difficult toing and froing. It took time and it took effort, but there was clarity of purpose. There was clarity of of strategy around it. And uh, we had to start low, low cell doses and, and that sort of thing. But the goal in the early days, and, and for us, what was important is we were accomplishing the first ever genome editing in a human. Yeah. And that was really the, the, the issue. You then move into the complexity of the disease of HIV. And as we go on in this discussion, we can contrast that mm-hmm. with the, uh, I'll call it lack of complexity of monogenic diseases, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So yes, clarity around CCR5 but lots of biology around HIV, right, and, yeah. and the issues of, of that. So lots of lots and lots of learnings, lots and lots of work, um, several very promising results, but never a consistent level of therapeutic outcome in terms of durability. Right. And that, you know, ultimately was frustrating. Yeah. Uh, we treated a lot of patients. Isn't it over 100 by now? I know you're oh, yeah. speaking for Sangamon now. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's, I, I, I yeah. believe it's well over 100. And yeah. now, you know, that work is quite active, both at Penn and at uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, and, and several other places, uh, with a whole new set of zinc fingers that are even more efficient uh, in this non-viral delivery, also in hematopoietic progenitors that we did with uh, Paula Cannon. So you touched on uh, the fact that uh, you then also brought in or developed programs to look at some rare monogenic inherited disorders, right? Hunter syndrome, Hurler syndrome. Were those the first two on the list? Yes. We also, so at that point we were doing everything uh, ex vivo. Yeah. And so T cells and then hematopoietic progenitors. Yeah. And so... We began to think about what other cell therapies could we think about. Mm. There was a lot of work going on as we turned that corner, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, in CAR-T and the emergence of CAR-T. We thought a lot about making universal donors or allogeneic uh, work there uh, and did a lot of what I'll call baseline work. And I'll talk about the Gilead-Kite deal. Mm. But the, the main thing, I think, was to start to focus on uh, targeted knockouts in hematopoietic progenitors, and that's what led us to sickle cell and beta thalassemia. Mm. And so that was a major target for us as well. At that time, we were getting better and better and better at not only the platform and specificity and targeting, but we were also getting better at delivery. And that's when we uh, really started uh, bringing in-house and our own capabilities on AAV delivery. 
Mm-hmm. And the combination of a lot of different things and, and improvements in the platform, improvements in the in the, the architecture, improvements in the specificity of the nucleases and the way we would dimerize those, all kinds of things led to the ability to start to think about using this in vivo. Mm. And um, so we started looking at targets in vivo and, and for knockouts. But that's when uh, Ed Rebar came up with this strategy of targeting the albumin locus mm-hmm. and looking at and using this in, you know, largely most powerful promoter in, in our bodies mm-hmm. and the most robust protein expression yeah. tool in our bodies out of the liver to harness that uh-huh. for our own purposes right. to drive expression of a therapeutic transgene. Uh-huh. Unbelievably clever. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. uh, and we called it, you know, in vivo protein replacement, yeah. uh, IVPRP. Yeah. And that led to an exploration of the appropriate site within the albumin locus, the appropriate site, the appropriate and best optimized nucleases for that strategy, uh, and the best delivery vehicles to get to the liver, the best serotypes, et cetera, et cetera. So a ton of work. And that led to the MPS1, MPS2, uh, factor nine. At the same time, uh, and, and this is work Mike, Mike Holmes, Bridget uh, Riley, and others, uh, really fundamental molecular biology on novel promoters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that took us down leveraging the novel promoter side with mm-hmm. our AAV work mm-hmm. into, you know, what, what you'd call sort of straightforward gene therapy versus right. genome editing. Right. Uh, which so you is, never went all in on gene editing? Well, we're all in on genome editing, but then we brought in other platforms. Right. We brought in AAV. We had to develop, uh, you know, better novel expression cassettes and promoters and so on. Mm. And so it became not just, you know, sort of this is what we're dealing with, where can we apply it? We have this capability, we have this capability, how can we? Mm. And so uh, we pushed forward hard on these protein replacements, not just from the albumin locus strategy perspective, but also where can we get and leverage the AAV and the promoter work? Mm. And that was really from factor eight, given the size of the factor eight gene mm-hmm. and so on from a replacement perspective. And, um, you know, Mike Holmes, uh, Bridget, as I said, and, and others really drove this factor yeah. eight program. Okay. And now it's following on that as the Fabre's program. Okay. So there's a whole line of work since 2012, 2013, 2014 mm. that drove the marriage of the AAV and promoter platform, mm. the AAV and nuclease platform, mm. along with the, the... So, and then obviously the, the whole uh, ex vivo side of things as well. Okay. So Sangamo has, um, you know, by the middle 2015, sort of uh, two or three different approaches. Our core work that we'd leverage from CCR5 and T-cells, so all the work in T-cells and in stem cells which manifested itself in CCR5, in sickle cell and beta-thal, and then even more recently in the incredible deal that we did with Gilead Kite Mm. in the allogeneic CAR T-cell space. Then we have the in vivo genome editing work that is going on primarily reflected in the the, uh, albumin locus and targeting monogenic diseases and inserting Mm those therapeutic transgenes mm. in, in the albumin locus. Mm. 
We still have gene regulation activities going on, particularly in the CNS, mm. and that's in Huntington's and in tau repressors mm. uh, that I think is underappreciated and underrecognized. Uh-huh. And then the, the, the gene therapy work that's okay. going on uh, with Factor Eight and, and Fabrays. That's fantastic. In 2013, early part thereof, uh, a wave of papers, most notably Feng Zhang's paper, but many others as well, show that this new funny name thing called right. CRISPR right. is a powerful, relatively easy to use right. gene editing tool that works beautifully in right. mammalian cells as well as everything else. Did you give any serious thought to bringing that technology into your company? I don't recall us seriously saying, you know, we got to get this. Right. I think our, my perspective was always, this is, you know, bacterial, it's nonspecific, it's immunogenic. Yeah. But I truly believe Mm. as, you know, three years, five years, 10 years from now, there will be shots, there will be areas where you can modify and then select yeah. ex vivo yeah. and use that modified cell, an allogeneic approach, for instance. Yeah. But the kinds of characteristics that a zinc finger protein has from a therapeutic platform perspective, I think are, are unique yeah. relative to the CRISPR platform. So as we sit here in early 2019, the one trial that I'm aware of that Sangamon has launched in vivo is for one of those monogenic disorders that we mentioned where the first patient, Brian Maddow, I think his name was, was treated in late 2017 and there was an exclusive uh, Associated Press story. So do you have a sense of how well that work is going? I I have exactly the sense uh, that, that you or anybody else who follows the company. But what I will say is this. Now there are at least three, and I think soon to be four, in vivo uh, program. So there's MPS2 that you just mentioned. Yeah. There's MPS1, which is in the clinic and treating patients. Yeah. There's the Factor 8 program that's yeah. partnered with Pfizer, yeah. uh, which is a straight gene therapy program. Yeah. And then there's the Fabrez IND, which they've guided to coming. Okay. And so two of those are gene therapy, two of those are I genome see. editing. Right. And then uh, the Shire partner Huntington's program is going to be an in vivo CNS program. And I think the Tau program, you know, whether that's later this year or not. And then on the cell therapy side of things, uh, both uh, beta-thal is treating patients and I think sickle uh, is starting to accrue patients. Mm. So there's there are multiple um, zinc finger nuclease and, yeah. and Sangamo gene therapy programs yeah. in the clinic. Yeah. Um, just a couple of uh, questions before we close, uh, Ed. This week, as we're sitting here recording this interview, um, a big commentary has just appeared in Nature calling for a moratorium uh, in the wake of the uh, the, the CRISPR babies uh, germline editing a story that broke uh, at the end of 2018, it may have been one of your few Nature papers, but you single <laughs> your one Nature paper, but it was an important one back in 2015, I think it was March when you led the call for uh, you raised the flag for concerns about uh, where um, genome editing uh, and in particular CRISPR genome editing. Um, could lead us. Why did you feel it was so important to uh, to raise that alarm, perhaps? Well, at the time, I can tell you, it was not even, for me personally, it wasn't even a debate. Yeah. It was, let's stop right here, yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, I will argue that we, Sangamo, uh, had been thinking about this 
for a very long time. Um, you know, back a long time ago, you know, we were making transgenic animal models. Mm -hmm. And we had academic partnerships outside of rats to make uh, different species. We were looking at, at non-human primate transgenics and so on. And so we didn't we discussed this stuff internally. We had we even had board discussions about, you know, what would this do? Would this be a good idea, a bad idea, so on and so forth. And for whatever reason, and I'm not a religious person, I'm not any of that stuff, it was an unambiguous bright line for me that yeah. you know the human species was yeah. not a laboratory animal. Yeah. And so as this emerged, I had been very vocal internally yeah. about this with Liz Wolf and Theodore and or who else was involved in that. And I was also at the time chairman of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, yeah. the group in Washington that yeah. policy and gene therapy and so yeah. on. So, yeah. so I was unambiguous about my point of view on this. Yeah. And I was quite disappointed, yeah. to be perfectly honest, yeah. in the science. You know, well, we should be cautious. We should think about this. We should talk about it. We should have these meetings. You know, I agreed with all that, but let's call for a full-blown stop because you were aware at this point, were you not, that the first reports of a gene-edited embryo were about to come out? Exactly. That's yeah. what that's yeah. what that's what spurred this this conversation or yeah. this discussion. Yeah. So we were unambiguous about it, and I'm very pleased with the attention that you know that spurred. I'm, you know, obviously I have no dispute with the efforts that the scientific community has taken on this. I think the communications that have come out have been clear and strong, but there's no enforcement. There's no real clarity of risk, benefit, consequences, so on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, leaving these ambiguous, well, there might be, could be, possibly be, maybe we'll find. And you have people that argue these very esoteric, well, you know, what if the mother and the father and this and... And so I think it's great that there's a renewed yeah. call for this moratorium. Maybe we should just close by getting you to kind of prognosticate. And it sounds from everything <laughs> we've talked about over the last period that you remain very upbeat about the fortunes and prospects for gene editing in the clinic. Um, and as more systems come along, we see um, CRISPR gene editing now entering the clinic. Base editing looks very promising, a yes. few years behind. Yes. Um, Zinc fingers will still have their say, I'm sure, if, if you and your former colleagues have anything to, to, to say about well, it. Well, I'm so. an unabashed uh, yeah. advocate, as, yeah. as you know, and remain so. The people who really did this, mm. right, are, you know, there, there's a hundred people uh, who are responsible for doing this. Mm. And, you know, I'm the 101 in terms of actually making yeah. what happened in this. So, yeah. you know, Philip Gregory, Theodore Ornoff, Mike Holmes, Ed Rebar, mm. Jeff Miller, the list goes on and on. What was the signal or the thought to step away and maybe give someone else a chance to uh, build on everything that you had you had helped uh, um, create that? You know, it was the right time for the company. Yeah. Uh, I had some personal health issues that kind of catalyzed the thinking, but uh, it was the right time. We had brought the platform to the point where, you know, it was truly not only clinically ready, but robust in terms of the agnostic nature of the targets that it could go after. We developed the delivery platform. We developed this novel promoter platform. And it was really time to say, if we really want to go to the real level of translation, 
we needed to build a company that was expert in pharmaceutical development and pharmaceutical you know, strategies for these things. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm a, a passionate guy and, and uh, you know, had my fair share of opportunities to pound the table and articulate the value <laughs> and all that. Uh, but it was uh, the right time to bring in, you know, the real pros. And um, I will remain, you know, as long as they continue to give me reason to, uh, you know, their biggest fan. Ed Lanfear, thank you so much for sharing your uh, <laughs> recollections and, uh, and hopes for uh, the field of gene editing. It's been a pleasure. Kevin, thanks tons. I enjoyed it.